Hello, Heron. Hello. Gosh, you were really in need of a chat this evening, weren't you? I really <laughs> typed OK, hit enter, and instantly. <laughs> instantly. I'm here. I'm Very always good. ready for you. Very good, Harrod. So I had a couple of things to talk about. and possibly... I want, You know, uh, there's something I wanted to talk about. Oh, too. very good. It was you a, start. It was a point that you brought, started up last week uh, okay. that I wanted to respond to. You talked about dreaming. Mm. And uh, and I, I, I have lots of dreaming stories, but the one that, w- that you brought up last week, the, the reason it came up for me is that the phonographics, the writing system, mm-hmm. uh, you've seen that, I guess, right? I think so. I um, well, I'll let you talk about it. Well, anyway, it's just a, it's a phonetic writing system that I designed for English. Certainly. That came to me in a dream. Mm. Uh, one night, about one in the morning, I woke up, and the whole thing was it was an image in my head. If you look at that that PDF, the it breaks the sounds of English into three distinct groups. Certainly. Yes, and uh, that whole matrix in that structure appeared to me in my dream. And mm. it was kind of weird, so I, I couldn't go back to sleep. I was all fired up about it. I had no idea what it was was really for or anything. Mm. And I ended up uh, going to a 24-hour coffee shop, and I <laughs> sat there throughout the whole night until 10 the next morning, uh, going through four or five various revisions of it. But uh, that basic matrix, what changed were the nature of the symbols themselves, but the matrix that the symbols fit in never changed. That that came to me just as it is today still in that dream it was an amazing thing <laughs> and i still think that's one of the best things i ever did but i in a sense i didn't really do it at all it just was given to me by the universe mm. you see I, I disagree i mean my view with regards to dreaming is that it's always about resolving something i mean there's always some resolution that occurs through those kind of dreams and you could also structure those kind of dreams. I often pose the question at the start of a dream, tell me the answer to this. And that creates a kind of narrative explanation that works through a variety of issues. Mm-hmm. So recently I've used it for, for relatively basic uh, problems, some things associated with noble apes, some things associated with my personal life, and also trying to understand various events that are going on in, in parallel. But that kind of, I think the, I was thinking about this actually today. I was listening, I was out with my wife and we had NPR on and they mentioned, I think uh, Jack Nicholson did a movie called, it was something to do with psychedelics. Anyway, he, he had this psychedelic experience and I was thinking about this because whilst I'm referenced by, you know, various psychedelic folk, various um What's the term, entheogen, or the anyway, the, the various non-derogatory terms? Um, I've I've never uh, done any psychedelics, but this whole notion of structured dreaming uh, and listening to you know years worth of Terence McKenna and a wide variety of these other folk basically have given me. I'm I'm wonder. I mean, I I don't I don't eliminate the fact that I may actually come in contact with some psychedelics later in my life. Um, but I mean, if whatever you believe towards the end, what have you. My fear is that it will actually be um, more crass, perhaps, than everything that I've heard about it up until now. <laughs> and it will actually be like some McDonald's experience where I, this is a hamburger, you know. But um, I think the skills that you can learn through listening to these thinkers um, 
particularly in terms of how you construct um, analytical realities or modes of uh, things which you can move into in dream states, I think are very powerful. And we it's really amazing to me that, that you would be interested, I mean, that, again, that you listen to all this McKenna and you've never taken any psychedelics yourself. Well, Everybody I know thing. who likes McKenna is a druggie. But here's the <laughs> thing. McKenna talks about the apes coming down from the trees and he attributes that to mushroom consumption. Well, that's but one the, of, yeah, scared, right. the scared ape hypothesis, the whole notion that what we really are are, are paranoid critters, that have descended into this predatorial world, and we're really hardwired for that. That is quintessential noble ape, and that is actually prior. I came through to this prior to hearing McKenna talk. Uh-huh. I think also the stuff that he talks about with regards to um, science, pseudoscience, and the boundaries of science have also been things that I've been a part of. Now, obviously, oh, okay. there's the yeah. time wave hypothesis and all this other kind of stuff, and yeah. my feeling is that you know. Uh, I'd like to think that I was creating some of that, but 2012 is pretty close, and I'm not seeing a lot of the stuff. <laughs> it's coming um, up. We'll see. But I like the idea. I mean, certainly Bruce Damon knew him towards the end of his life, and what Bruce Damon says is that towards the end of his life, he really was uh, deconstructing that in terms of the fact that it wasn't a, a you know, it's more a vision about the future rather than actually being a hard date. Yeah, uh, And my feeling is, and we may have described this previously, I'm not sure if we'd actually talked about this, that there have been a number of singularities that have occurred through human history. We are just not in the right domain to understand them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, no, I, I, I mean, you've got to appreciate I listen to McKenna very much like, I don't know, I listen to McKenna very much while I'm doing other things. He's very much a voice in the back of my head when I listen yeah. to him. And then I just catch these... Uh, these moments of brilliance and particularly stuff that relate to language simulation, yeah. oh, these yeah. kind of things, very resonant with, with well, he's just He's just my favorite talker, I think, in the <laughs> whole world. It's just listening to him talk is just <laughs> so much fun. It is a wonder. I mean, it really is a wonder yeah. through. Uh, and I think also um, he, he was so out of his element in terms of, I think, the problem really is that there used to be people like him that existed throughout throughout history. There have been Terence McKenna's. Uh, they've existed typically within universities. Uh, I mean, I think Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was not in psychedelics, but certainly with regards to divergent thinking, was similar to McKenna, yeah. particularly towards the end of his life where he started giving public talks. And I think there have been thinkers prior to McKenna that have had this ability to communicate with the public and also just so many areas that they they talk about. My concern with McKenna is sorry. Well, I was just I, I don't think you say his he communicates with the public. The the people that listen to McKenna are a tiny percentage of the public to say he has a public. <laughs> well, you look at the children of I mean I look at the children of to a lesser extent Timothy Leary, but certainly the children of McKenna are very much contemporary communicators whether they exist actively or whether they exist in things like advertising or general propaganda. I think he has had a substantial... people do you think actually even have ever heard the name of Terence McKenna? Well, directly, I think it's probably a a fraction of a percent. Okay, all right. right. I I just wanted to make sure we're both in the same reality here. Yes, clearly. Yes, no, I I don't think he's um, he's like, you know... For those who know of him, he's uh, (laughs) St. Terrence. Well, you see, I was exposed to him. I was exposed to him prior to actually... In fact, he was an irritant to me 
early on, particularly when I was in Australia, because I would read uh, occasionally about his talks and what have you. I have a view, um, it's a bit like this for The Grateful Dead as well. The Grateful Dead never toured Australia, so my feeling is that if you can't, if you didn't get to Australia, when I lived in Australia, if you couldn't be bothered to come to Australia and you were part of some intellectual movement that was very well, you know, focused in particular areas, and McKenna was like that. I mean, he did some, he did Hawaii, Mexico, California, basically. I mean, they they were his his areas. Yeah. Um, and the whole notion of the way he, op- I mean, this is the irony. Originally, I mean, you knew him when he would charge money for talks, I'm assuming. I mean, that's how you met him. Did you pay for a talk and attend no, one of his? I don't talks? know. I think it was a. I don't think I paid for it. I don't remember <laughs> now. I, I don't know. I don't remember. I don't so, think I paid for it. I think he just. It, it was just an arranged talk, and there were maybe yeah. two, three hundred people there. Gosh, gosh, yeah. I, no, I had no exposure to any of that, and based on where I was, with my feel, I feel the same way about the UK. I mean, growing up in Australia, I absolutely hated the UK. When I actually lived there, it was like heaven on earth for me. So my feeling is that you always, you know, your location and your age perhaps change the way you think about. So I would read periodically mm-hmm. about McKenna, particularly. Uh, I mentioned Douglas Roscoe in the past, but he was a a solid person of impact for me in my kind of mid-teens, and he talked about McKenna, Roscoe. I mean, the reason I started communicating with Rushkov was I sent him an email after he published his first book, Siberia, saying if you'd invested in an airline ticket, you would have written a better book. Um, and I was very very concerned that he had this kind of packed California view with yeah. regards to technology. I was very sensitive to that. But then having, you know, having lived in the Bay Area, having experienced L.A., I mean, I do get a sense of the kind of... It's very much about shutters. I mean, it's very kind of... Um, Blinkered thinking, really, with regards really? to the world. Oh, America! I think, well, I think that's American. I don't think no, that's it's California. It, Americans it's don't think anything outside of it's America. Particularly, now. no. I, well, I mean, I have I have friends in Santa Cruz, for example, that produce podcasts that begin with all the most relevant thinking that is occurring in the world today is coming out of this area. Uh, (laughs) That's the way it starts. They they need to say all the relevant thinking that I'm aware of (laughs) is happening within three blocks of my house. The thing that interests me, particularly doing Noble Ape, making sure Noble Ape is an international project, is the crazy, well, I mean, like you, I've had similar experiences in terms of the world becoming a very small place. Um, and particularly, I mean, I think of uh, Malik Kutash in Jordan, who I've been communicating with six years now, uh, who's a Jordanian farmer. I think of uh, Pedro Ferreira, who started in Portugal and now works at CERN. Uh, Riddle Pensapali, who was an Indian fellow who I helped get a job over here and who did a master's degree over here. I mean, I think of the international community and a wide variety of folk in the U.S. as well. But um, the sense that uh, I think the U.S. becomes an epicenter for these kind of things. But having said that, life was so much easier when I lived in the U.K. It was just a country made for eccentrics and very much where you... I mean, Uh, I got on national radio doing what we're doing currently, Hera. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I got it. Yeah, yeah, right. It, it, there is, yeah, yeah. Weirdos in America are really, yeah. Certainly. The fringe, whereas in the yeah. UK, they're just another, they're just another well, intricate. Sure which one do you think is preferable? <laughs> it's a difficult choice. I mean, the weather in the UK is pretty horrible. 
yeah, that's but, the way. Well, no, I'm just thinking the intellectual climate. I'm thinking if they just accept, and here we ignore eccentrics, there they just sort of laugh them off. Oh, I, no, no, eccentrics <laughs> are very much part of the, uh, well, for example, I mean, my experience is going to the UK versus coming to here. I walked into a bank in the UK. I said, I'm a software engineer. They said, here, have a bank account. Uh, would you like a, a credit card as well? Everything was like that. Yeah. You're a software engineer. We understand what you are. Yeah. I came here. I had to <laughs> prove myself for three years. I had to do a wide variety of things to just prove that I was capable of earning a basic living. <laughs> I, I think the, the circumstances are very different, uh, and I think the, the perceptions are very different. But with regards to this notion of eccentrics, the UK has a strong sense that the eccentric folk actually do things to improve the society. Really? And here, the nerd culture is very different here. The nerd culture is very much the other. There's an aggressive element. I attribute it actually to um, football and cheerleaders. I think the mentality in this country, particularly through the teens, is very much about not necessarily... There's a strange... There's a strange dichotomy between sexuality and violence in this country, which seems to manifest itself in football. But I think the nerd culture here is very different. So when I spent time um, with Wozniak's people, for example, the the nerds there, and this is literally, you you take the Bay Area of kind of computer programmer nerd types, and Wozniak kind of handpicks from that. And he would have an annual Super Bowl party where all these nerds would come together. And the Super Bowl would be on the background, but, you know, we'd be tinkering with what have you. And I found it was a very strange group of people and not the kind of... I mean, in the UK, eccentrics get together on a regular basis. and It's very, you know, like normal communication and people. Yeah. And this environment, I found considerably more hostile and i realized that i'd actually developed almost a form of passive aggression in order to deal with the circumstances mm. but i met some interesting people there um i met you know people that had developed the first mac and these kind of things and a wide variety of people that i kind of knew on fringe fringe friendship groups but that was one of the topics that i wanted to discuss with you this evening in terms of your dream let's let's kind of round off the original topic in terms of your dream um representation is this something that you would want to cultivate or is this something which just was like walking through a field and seeing an amazing piece of fruit or something just in front of you um i'm i'm i, I don't really understand the question the question is basically you talk about this as being a relatively unique and impactful event in your life this, associated the, the, with this dream for the photographics yes, exactly. i got that matrix yeah yes so well, it was important in that it, it gave me that that whole thing, you know. Yeah, I mean that's mm. what it was. Whether it was important or not, that's a whole different issue. <laughs> it's debatable, but it, but I did have the dream, and the phonographics resulted from it. Mm. Have you had other dreams like that? Well, I had. I I don't know if we ever talked about my uh, telepathic dream. I've only had one other. I, Let's talk about it. Oh, that's it's real simple. There's, there's really, I've only had two experiences in my life that I can't explain easily. Mm -hmm. One was an out-of-body experience that happened. I won't go into the details of it, but it only lasted about two or three seconds, but it was mm -hmm. quite startling. Mm -hmm. uh, I've never been able to reproduce it, and I have no idea how to explain it except that I had a, a momentary stroke 
or hallucination mm-hmm. or something. Uh, and and that's it. But the sensation was that I was out of my body over my How head. Looking, oh, 20s. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that's one thing that's happened to me that I can't explain. The other thing was a dream. I, I was woken up by a dream one night about Actually, strangely enough, about one in the morning, the same time as the other dream, now that I think about it. Uh, and in the dream, I witnessed a guy get killed on a motorcycle through a weird set of circumstances. But, I mean, that's not important. But the point was, I, I witnessed the guy get killed on a motorcycle. And the dream had a quality about it, unlike any dream I've ever had. I, I was really disturbed when I woke up. Uh, I found it really difficult to get back to sleep, and it just didn't feel like any other dream I'd ever had. That's all I can say. It was just different. Mm-hmm. And so I, finally I went back to sleep. I woke up the next day, and uh, basically by then I just it had faded, and I was back to normal life. But two days later I got a letter in the mail saying that a friend of mine's son was killed on a motorcycle at exactly the time I had that dream. Mm. Uh, and... Weirder yet is the circumstances of the accident were completely different. I mean, there was nothing mm. in common between them. Mm. So, and plus, I had never even met the guy's son. I worked with the guy. Mm. So it's not like I had some close relationship with the son. But, but in any case, you know, and I suppose you can just write that off as coincidence. Mm. But, you know, it just doesn't, like I say, the dream had a quality that was just very different and weird and then to find out days later that, that he died at you know within a couple of minutes of when i mm. had that dream i i don't know what can you say about that how would how do you explain something like that i don't know mm. well i guess the psychologists would call that synchronicity in terms of the fact that it's a reinforced experience that has been reinforced primarily firstly because it was disturbing in nature and secondly because the events transpired relatively soon after it. Well, you're saying it's coincidence. I mean, well, synchronicity is slightly different than coincidence because basically it's a function of the mind more than a function of time. It is an internal thing rather than um, an external thing, but it represents itself in terms of what becomes, in, in reinforced terms, a profound vision that you remember. Um, my sense of synchronicity is it doesn't, um, it's agnostic with regards to whether or not this is some kind of uh, external well, force. Well, you're talking thing. about the significance of it to me psychologically. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I understand that. I'm just talking about the the fact mm-hmm. that I had a dream about a guy dying on a motorcycle within two or three minutes of when this guy actually died. Mm. Now, again, it may just be coincidence, you know, that mm. lots of people die on motorcycles every mm. day, and mm. lots of people probably have dreams about people dying on motorcycles. Mm. Yes, I think the synchronicity, there, there, there seem to be two parts that it goes down. One is just a means of reinforcing that these things do occur, and another is a means of exploring how the mind can... Um, can attach itself to these things. Well, I, you know, I think for, it is agnostic with regards yeah. to... Well, for uh, me, the question is, are those two related in in any way other, you know, in any meaningful way? Because the feeling I have is that that's not just coincidence. Certainly. You know, that there's some connection there between my brain and that event somehow, mm. you know, 
But, I mean, I'm completely at a loss to explain how anything like that could possibly work, although there are plenty of theories out there. I mean, a lot of people accept that as just perfectly normal telepathy, big deal, you know. Mm. But, I, you know, like I say, when it happened to me personally, um, you know, I mean, if someone had told me this story, I could be, I'd be very rash. I'd probably be saying everything you're saying. Who are you being telepathic with, though? I don't think, I mean, certainly under my definition of telepathy, Unless you were sharing oh, well, a telepathic Oh, well, it's just maybe to, to a, cr- a connection between two points in space-time, maybe. So, maybe it may not. Yeah, I have no idea, and, and I'm just using words that other people use. I don't know what to make of it. I mean, I mm. really don't. I have no opinion about it. All I know is it happened, and it felt like it's significant. It feels more significant than it's just, you know, one of those things. Certainly, you know, but that's as far as I can take it. After, I mean, this was 30 years ago, and I and I feel I'm still as confused about and not confused but as unable to talk about it rationally as i was Mm. then i just i can't make Mm. anything of it which and that's okay i mean i don't mind that (laughs) so certainly certainly no, it sounds like one of these uh, one of these bookmark events as it appears to have and been I did in your. A lot of, it's, it's, since we're talking about dreaming too, yeah, I I used to do a lot of flying in my dreams. Very and, much so. And that yeah. was awesome. I just I miss that dearly. Mm. Uh, but other than that, dreaming is never. I mean, I, I'm aware of the concept of lucid dreaming. I can't do it. Mm. Uh, and for many years, only recently have I started dreaming again, or at least remembering them. Uh, for the last 20 years, uh, I dreamt very occasionally, maybe once a month or maybe a couple times a year would I wake up and remember dreaming. But over the last few months, I've started uh, dreaming again. It's Does it predate fun. your reconnection with your son? Um, I think so, yeah. Okay. Okay. Because, I mean, certainly in, in descriptive terms, that seems to have been a... A major change in your life, or at least your thinking. What, reconnecting with my son? Well, you talk about it. Well, yeah, it's certainly something new in my life. Certainly, certainly. So I I had a a couple of topics for discussion as well. I think just uh, the, yes, the notion of disconnected, I I had a similar experience, but not um, with regards to the like a, a motorcycle or some kind of accident. But um, the day or the evening, um, I'm not sure if I've told you this story, but when I was in the Bay Area, um, I uh, was working with a lot of startups and I didn't get a lot of sleep and I was working long hours and working with a variety of people, uh, including Wozniak, but also a lot of lawyers and, and engineers. And I met a friend from... Australia, who had just started at Stanford, this was in November, he'd gotten a scholarship uh, to Stanford, November 2000. Actually, no, it was October, sorry, let me tell the story correctly. And um, we went out, and I had October what year? 2000. Okay. And I was living in Sunnyvale at the time, and uh, he came down from Stanford, it's like one, maybe two uh, Caltrain stops down. I got off, we had a meal, Uh, we went out, Uh, I had a couple of drinks of beer, uh, and then uh, I bid him farewell. And as I was walking back, um, the police pulled up behind me. And I put my hands up because they had stopped and were talking in their radios. And they, they weren't interested in me, but I was walking along a darkened street. And they came out of the car and we had a chat. We exchanged um, 
And as they got back in the car, I turned away and I tripped and fell. I collapsed on the side of the road. Uh, and I basically blanked out for a period of time and forgot this whole leading up to this for about three or four days following because I'd obliged my head. The first thing that I remember was waking up in hospital uh, and being interrogated quite literally by the nursing staff who said, you're not really the age that you say you are. I have my passport on me. I was 22, I think, at the time. And they said, you're not 22. You're a lot older than you are. Uh, and you smell of alcohol, and what's the story here? And I said, well, I can't remember because I've had a blow to my head. And I said, well, the police didn't say anything about blow to the head. So they kept me there. They do a variety of tests when they have... Um, uh, I mean, I was a legal migrant. I was carrying my passport with my visa. But um, after all this, is about four in the morning, they let me go, and I called a, a taxi and, and went back to Sunnyvale. But I was very shook up by it. Within probably two or three days, the primary people I was working with were Wozniak's people. He had a, a, a couple of people around him that I worked with um, almost exclusively in terms of the projects I was working on. One of them involved a woman who um, who had worked for Palm for a period of time, and then she had started up her own company and become independently wealthy. And she was going to invest in the startup that I was working on. And within about three days, I heard that she'd gone missing. And uh, within about a week, it was confirmed that she had died in a light plane crash. The plane was completely incinerated. And that had happened on the same evening that I collapsed on the side of the road. Ah. Uh, who knows what the time yeah. frame was, but it was a <laughs> yeah. similar kind of time yeah. frame. Yeah. Um, the thing that struck me about that, um, and I still don't necessarily want to go into too many details because it was all very bizarre, but the thing that struck me about that was that um, I had head trauma, obviously, and was concussed. I couldn't remember anything. Uh, was the ex-people very much about, you know, have a few days off, but get back on the horse, keep working. And that was the point of my life where I realized something really fundamentally had to change uh, about the way I was living my life. <laughs> and this whole thing was yeah. just nuts, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, I met my wife about a month after that, and, it was, you know, that completely changed my uh, perspective on things. But, um, yeah, I, I, that is a similar experience. And my feeling is it was more a combination of events. There is a lot of background to this as well that I don't, I think probably in 10, maybe 15 or 20 years, I can, I can give more detail to. But I don't feel particularly comfortable about talking about it currently. Yeah. But um, the circumstances around that made me realize that, uh, you know, sometimes these things are just uh, cumulative rather than, uh, mm. than necessarily being, uh, you know, fate or or synchronicities or what have you well we're um, talking now about again the message we take away from whatever certainly. this is yes and, well for me it was to change my life yeah right yeah see these dreams that are the dream i'm talking about had no impact on my life in any other way other than <laughs> i just simply couldn't explain it <laughs> you know but it, it didn't change the way i thought about well i mean to the extent that i experienced something that i actually couldn't explain i mean Virtually, there's nothing else in my life that I can't, you know, come up with some more or less scientific, reasonable explanation for. Certainly, yeah. Yeah, an internal narrative, at least. Yeah, Yeah. well, one that more or less satisfies me. Uh, now, in your case, again, that that's, in my book, is a little bit easier to explain. I mean, because 
Well, again, because what's important to you is the lesson you took away, not really the connection between. That could have happened a day There is later. more that I'm not talking ah, about. Okay. Right. The six. I'm sorry. Ah, if I'm okay. giving you a slightly shallow right. account, yeah, it's so because I, I don't need to go into right. details. Yeah. So, so, yes, I, I haven't given you enough you. information yeah. here. Um, but that, in large part, is to do with... Uh, some of the additional surreal stuff, which yeah. which I'm not throwing in there. Um, well, I'm but curious, yeah, why why wouldn't you want to talk about that? Because it's very eerie to me, and it's eerie in a way where the people who were involved with it are still alive. So my feeling is that there are things which I probably um, I just feel uncomfortable about, and these oh. people are independently wealthy, and I don't really need to talk about it at this stage. It will, however, well, be in my fictionalized are there biography. Names? I mean, are, yeah, their names, are they important? or? or I think basically because you're dealing with individuals where I've already given some description associated with the events, I think yeah, it could oh, be. okay, I got it. So okay, yeah, that it's makes not, sense. Uh, let's just say that there's more bizarreness here. Yeah, that, okay. That yeah, well, damn, I can hardly wait to hear it. <laughs> I mean, just, you're yeah. a bum, man, to put out half the story. <laughs> well, maybe we need to have a story. Maybe we need to have a time where the conversations aren't recorded. But is this one is being recorded for the masses? Let's well, just we, leave I it. can turn off the recording. <laughs> we can take a little break. Oh, if you want to. Well, I'm. I'm not sure if you're... Okay, let's take a little break then. Sorry, audience. <laughs> okay. Okay, yes, uh, we are recording now. <laughs> okay, so for the benefit of those that are listening in, in 20 years' time, there will be a fictionalized biographical account of what I've just told Heron, but to confirm for the audience, Heron, this is a pretty good story, isn't it? It is indeed a good story, and Very you good. poor suckers out there who didn't get to hear it <laughs> will just have uh, to wait for the... Um, Fictionalized biography in the well, future. Well, just wait long enough and just tell. It doesn't even need to be fictionalized. You should tell the truth. But just oh, wait. I always no. I I, I have a history. I mean, this thing that I'm right when I was seventeen is very much a, a fictionalized. Uh, but it's the way you can do. I think I could almost probably within the next ten years tell that story in a fictionalized account without any trouble. Yeah, you're right. You could. You're right. You could just yeah, it'd be easy to do, really. In fact, it could but be it's more yeah. fun when it's when it's true. <laughs> I, I probably agree with you, Heron. Anyway, so apologies to the audience. We've yeah. we've left some horrible cliffhanger. Which anyway, let's move on from that. Um, so the topics that I wanted to discuss, you've had the you've had some recent. I get the impression that the people that come on your uh, other recordings probably don't listen to the podcast feed at all. Well, wait a minute. You're talking about, what, the old archive recordings? I don't know. You threw in one of me, which really took me off guard this week. I've been posting mostly old stuff from 2006 okay. last week. But the, uh, the stuff the associated with uh, WikiLeaks is contemporary, though. Okay, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, it, well, you, you know, when you look there, if it has two, th if it has a, starts off of with a date, then that's from the old Skype date, cast date. Certainly, yeah. certainly. So, I... Some background here. When I was 18, as we talked about with regards to my time in Thailand, I spent quite a bit of time in Malaysia. And through that time, I was absolutely fascinated by the media coverage in Malaysia of Chechnya. And what it made me realize is that basically the evil rebels are whoever is, whoever um, the local media or the, in the case of Malaysia, the local religion and the case here as well, choose to affiliate with. <laughs> so the accounts that came out of Malaysia I just found really fascinating. The portrayal of the Chechen rebels as unsung freedom fighters and heroic characters that were fighting against, um, I guess, the Russian army back then it just fascinated me. And I guess my background, particularly this, this book 
I wrote when I was 17, my experiences in Australia, all give me kind of subtle sympathies to the idea of um, large-scale invading forces and what locals do in these kind of circumstances. Mm. So the way that I analyse a lot of stuff, particularly in this country, is very much with that view that we, in the US in particular, the enemies are only really the short-term enemies, enemies, and they have a you know, long-term friends in some regard. They're all these kind of curious bedfellows that the U.S. through its uh, history have uh, have courted, I mean, from the French on, basically. Mm. Um, and I think the current situation, I find it's difficult to read in terms of understanding it with any degree of coherence. Um, so to give some solid examples to this, certainly I've been following the situation in Afghanistan since the mid 80s, I guess. Uh, and certainly my sense of what is going on there currently is that uh, perhaps the history of Afghanistan is um, maybe lost on a contemporary American <laughs> Apparently audience. Apparently they weren't paying uh, any attention. So, well, yes, maybe even not five, ten minutes ago. The thing that strikes me about WikiLeaks in particular is none of the information is new, and also the information was censored by the U.S. government via the New York Times, um, which they kind of admit to. Um, so I really I find it difficult to see, aside from... I mean, I, I put this out to other uh, folks that I communicate with, and they pointed out that the geospatial significance of actually knowing when these particular attacks occurred is new. I don't think that's particularly new, however... Um, certainly all the information well, that seems to be... It may be important that at least it's now out there. It ex well, okay, so the pertinent facts uh, when Assange is interviewed associated with what he's released, the only thing that he can talk about that is a new uh, revelation in terms of uh, what he describes as atrocities is the bombing of or the, the Polish revenge attack where they um, fired on a village after they came under attack a few days previously. In terms of the American attacks, in terms of the details associated with um, the Pakistani uh, government through the intelligence services funding the Taliban, what's even more interesting is the Taliban being funded by US contractors. These things have all been discussed uh, by Senate committees and the Congress here. I mean, these aren't new yeah. facts. So what interests me about this is that it is, in fact, some kind of strange rebranding exercise, ah, uh, yeah. which is quite a bit removed. To, to summarize... Rebranding, that's a great... Well, but to summarize, yeah. <laughs> the, the Taliban has one objective, and that is to bankrupt superpowers. They were very successful as the Mujahideen bankrupting the USSR, and they are being very successful bankrupting the U.S. Yes, currently. Yeah, they're doing a great job. And I think the that narrative, and particularly when you look about the cost associated with putting one, not just American, but one Westerner in Afghanistan versus the Mujahideen, because really the Mujahideen has never died. It's It's been rebranded. The yeah, Taliban yeah. is very small compared to all the Afghan farmers that take up arms and fight. It's a fascinating thing, and the fact that the the discussion now is so... I mean, the, the war atrocities or whatever whatever it's branded and in terms yeah. of WikiLeaks, everyone knows about anyway. Yeah, yeah. They don't care. Yeah. yeah. So I was thinking about your uh, discussion associated with 
getting up, going to work, watching television, coming home, going to bed, uh, or somewhere in that order. I think coming <laughs> home, then going to bed. Yeah, anyway, yeah, in, somewhat in that order. And the the issue is really the economic part because what is happening now, I think, and ah, particularly yeah. where I am, is that people aren't going to work anymore. Yeah. So yeah, in, <laughs> yeah that's right. So the the parent the paradigm has been broken. Um, and why and, people don't seem to see that? That's what amazes me is that there are all these tea baggers and talking about taxes and everything, you know, and, and it just never seems to dawn on them how much money we have spent in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 10 years. And also the dramatic effect that that has had on the U.S. Well, I mean, the, well, that's, the, yeah. Yeah. Not an, in, in, not, yeah, forgetting the, but just monetarily forgetting the geopolitical stuff, Certainly. just the, just the money. <laughs> yeah. And the continuous hemorrhage. I mean, the yeah. fact that hemorrhage isn't going to be stopping anytime soon. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and moreover, the, this is the strategy of the Taliban. Well, that actually, this is exactly what they want. So yeah, they're doing a great job. We accommodate that, them quite well. Yes. The discussion with your recent guest associated with what in the U.S. Constitution stops torture is I'm, your point is exactly right that uh, basically torture uh, exists independent of these uh, documents. Mm. I think the thing that interests me is now some of the U.S. public, the mentality has distinctly changed. I don't think all the U.S. public has. But some of the U.S. public, the mentality has distinctly changed associated with what circumstances these these things can be used in. Um, and it's a, very, it's a very curious time. If the Taliban succeeds and the U.S. is bankrupted, <laughs> my suspicion is that we, you and I, in terms of Nevada and California, will probably be one of the first two new countries to have some kind of civil strife. I think the... The bankrupting of Nevada, the transition, the perception of wealth in California, there could be some real trouble between our two future countries here, Herrick. Oh, they're, well, within California, within cities, uh, within... Oh, you think, of course, yeah, the cities are going to disintegrate. Yeah, but. it's going to be a mess. It, or it could be. I mean, it might not be. It, it, there's, I mean, I don't think we can really predict what's going to happen, but... I I'm joking. It, it, I'm, I'm using the USSR as an example here. Um, but I think uh, certainly... The way it's headed is that no one, well, particularly no one in power, because they're, you know, they're fundamentally paid by the people that are, are making money through this process. Uh, this is a, this is an avalanche. This isn't a, you know, something which is stoppable. Uh, well, the next, the next few years, decade, next couple of decades, I expect the, I don't, I think the United States will be gone and. 10 I years, heard, 20 years I, at the outside, maybe yeah. 10 or maybe quite less. I don't yeah. know. Well, I think that's, I mean, that you know, the the yeah. nature of states bankrupting themselves is... Um, well, that's why the Soviet Union disappeared That's overnight. exactly the point. And, and the same thing I expect to happen to the United States. Yes, the ego of the superpower is the enemy of the people of the superpower. Yeah, yeah. Yes, but anyway, I wanted to I wanted to put that out there because I think I don't know if anyone actually I still haven't received an email from any listeners here. So if listeners are listening in, just to let me know that you're listening in, Tom at noble8.com, dot <laughs> com, uh, because that may inspire directions of the conversation. You know, I don't, I've had very little feedback. I don't know who the hell is downloading all these things. <laughs> 
you know, because yes. they sure don't communicate with me. Yes. <laughs> you know, I don't get it. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about is a psychological phenomena, and um, so there's a backstory to this, but it's the idea, and this very much comes from my time with Wozniak as well, of the smartest person in the room. You find these circumstances where people believe that they are the smartest person in a room, and it creates a whole series of what I think is quite amusing paradoxes. Um, but maybe it's something to do with just uh, maybe this aggressive nerd culture. But, uh, well, proof in point, it's not necessarily just with the U.S. I had a friend and his girlfriend come through uh, Las Vegas last week. And this is a fellow I knew who uh, at Ericsson. He was a private consultant at Ericsson. He, um, he has this language, speaking of language-empowered um, language folk, he has a programming language, however, that Ericsson started. It was started in a small research facility inside Ericsson. But this fellow has kind of evangelized, championed, and now employs a number of people, probably 20 or so, um, in order to teach this language to various um, you know, large-scale corporations. The idea of the language is it's very similar to other programming languages, but it has this power of hot-swappability. And what that means is that the computer never needs to stop in order to change what's being run on it. Mm -hmm. So this is a very powerful, obviously, in, uh, well, I mean, at Ericsson, in terms of the, the switches, obviously, not the phones, but the things that carry all the data traffic. Yeah. So this fellow is very competitive, very intellectually competitive, because it's his means of survival. And he's constantly looking for the next most exciting thing. When I knew him... In my early 20s, I used to play with him constantly about this because it was something that I, you know, felt a degree of amusement about. But um, seeing him again, uh, because he's very serious about this, I mean, this is, you know, his life's work or what have you, um, and heaven forbid people that just, you know, maintain their intellectual interests as hobbies have nothing to do with that. So um, the funny story associated with this is that I was at Apple a few weeks ago, and when I was at Apple, they were talking about this notion of hot swappability. Because my suspicion is, and this is, again, new information that your listeners are going to get for the first time, is that Apple not only wants to command the handheld cell phone market, they also want to control all the back-end stuff as well. That's literally the supercomputers that maintain the, the telephone networks. And um, there's a lot of money to be made in that as well, particularly all the media streaming and all the stuff that Apple wants to do in the future because contemporary... They, didn't they just buy a couple hundred thousand square feet down the south somewhere for a yeah. media center? So, yeah. hence, this is, this is the theory manifesting itself. So uh, when I was there, I only spent half an hour there, but they were listing all the technologies that they wanted me to pursue with Noble Ape in a variety of different directions based on their current and, I guess, their future um, uh, interests, business interests. And they mentioned this issue of hot swappability. Now, Noble Ape has a scripting language underneath it, although increasingly, from what's going on in the UK, the scripting language is kind of being pushed to one side, but it's called ApeScript. And the idea of ApeScript is that you describe what the ape does in any particular situation. It's a relatively simple language, but it's very powerful because you can construct a wide variety of settings that means when the ape is in that particular setting, it will behave in a particular fashion. Um, it's useful, for example, if you want to put radical agents into the simulation. So if you've got a series of simulated apes and you want to convince, you know, you want to put the uh, Hitler or Stalin ape in amongst them and convince them all to kill off a population of apes and start, you know, doing bizarre things. So that's what ApeScript is primarily there for. So we were talking about this notion of hot swappability and I said, oh yeah, I can, I can do that with ApeScript. I can roll it out. 
And he listed a series of languages. One of these languages was Erlang, language, is the language that this fellow specializes in. I said, oh, yes, no, I know about Erlang. I was at Ericsson briefly, and this hot swappability is really good because, you know, it's, particularly when you're dealing with supercomputing environments, the ability not to have to shut it down or reboot yeah, yeah. or restart something makes a lot of sense. So anyway, I was going out to dinner with this fellow, and this conversation came to me just before we were meeting him. There were a wide variety of problems. This fellow's based in the UK. He had a cell phone with UK time on it. He was driving from um, Utah through to Nevada. He hadn't set the time right. I was coordinating with him via text messages and Skype because I don't have an international calling plan anymore. I just use Skype. And we were, you know, miles away from meeting. We were originally going to meet at five. We ended up meeting for dinner at seven. My wife was there. His uh, girlfriend was there as well. Prior to the meeting, however, this story associated with Apple came back to me. And I said, oh, remind me to tell you about um, Apple and Erlang. And he said, oh, is this to do with some, they have some bug tracking system, which is also implemented in Erlang. And I said, no, no, it's not to do with that. So we sat down. And uh, I said, oh, you know, I was over at Apple, I had this theory, and explained what I explained to you with regards to kind of back-end servers as well as the cell phones. I said, when I was there, they mentioned Erlang explicitly, and I said, oh, yeah, the hot swap ability talked about that. Without skipping a beat, he said, did you mention my name? I said, no. He said, uh, well, you know, we really want, we need to get into Apple. And I said, um, well, let me tell you about how Apple works here. And he said, no, we just got into, I think it was um, Chrysler. And we got into Chrysler because they were doing something and they needed some of our software. And we came in and we started charging them consulting. And now we have, you know, five full-time contractors at Chrysler. I said, you're not going to get into Apple with this method. And I described to him my experience with Apple, how it's long-term, how you need to develop something of interest, how, you know, it's not, you can't march in there and just say, here's how it is, start paying <laughs> consultancy fees, you know. So after about half an hour of this, thankfully, my wife and his girlfriend got along, so they were able to continue this conversation. I, I, I you know, I'd exhausted the joke here, and this was just becoming a bit boring um, in terms of this fellow not actually understanding what I was saying. But it reinforced this idea of the smartest person in the room, and I do find myself in circumstances where I'm confronted by these people who think that they are have some... Uh, it's not necessarily intellectual supremacy because it's always based in flawed thinking, but it's based in the idea, and to be clear to your listeners, I always enter a situation feeling very much like I am, and this part comes from coming from Australia, but I always feel that I have things to learn from circumstances and typically I'm the underdog, and particularly in this country early on when I used to go into these startups and even you know the likes of Hasbro and you know, large American corporations, I always felt like the underdog, and I never could use the smartest person in the room archetype um, because you can you can never learn from those circumstances. They're just kind of, you know, recurring uh, errors. Um, but I work with a fellow as well who has this um, smartest person in the room uh, kind of archetype. It's a very strange archetype. It's probably not something that you, you may be exposed to at Heron. Um, I think I suffer from it. Uh, <laughs> well, you've got to break yourself of it because it will give you no happiness. Well, I, I understand that. I'm I'm fairly aware of it as a shortcoming, and and I do take measures to counteract it. I I go into most situations assuming that 98 percent of people I run into are basically unconscious language monkeys. Mm. But that's yeah, an but narrative I, that you tell yourself. That's not to do. That's not something which you 
have either collected statistics on no, or... No, it's just my assumption. But, but yeah. I also try, try, and I think I'm pretty good at uh, knowing that that is merely my assumption and being open to listening to what the person in front of me has to say. To, you know, but I'm relatively harsh. If they don't say something relatively interesting pretty soon... I mean, after given the opportunity, then I realize, yes, they are unconscious language monkeys, and there's no point in me talking to them. Mm. The other thing that you realize very quickly, if you can acknowledge this archetype, is that there are people that realize that you know about it and that you are downplaying circumstances. And I think probably reflecting in my long-term friends, it's the people that can see that that ultimately end up with the... Uh, you know, if if I come into a confrontational situation, I will try to avoid playing uh, an alpha male. I mean, my wife might snicker off in the background to this, but I think that's the the monkey representation of the oh, smartest. Yeah. No, person. that's the last place I go. Yes, I mean, the minute I'm aware of that kind of situation, I shut up. Yeah, you know, so, and I just start listening. See, that thing is, once I realize I'm in one of those scenarios, that's when I switch into Earthling and <laughs> use my Gendo tactics. And the first <laughs> thing to do there is to shut up and listen. Yeah, my my starting point typically, unless I know the people, is to shut up and listen. And after, depending on the person, anywhere from half an hour to in long talking situations uh, onwards of three hours, I will then make a couple of points. Um, I think the, yeah, it's a phenomenon which I don't you know. You listen I mean, I, to somebody for three hours? I have in one circumstance, and then basically that's the point where you outline over the past three hours the things that they have gotten slightly wrong. Um, and in the case of this there one... There must have really been some strong incentive. There must have really been something big in it for you to spend well, you create, three no, hours listening well, to somebody drone you've got to understand. You've got to understand through my day-to-day -day life, I'm constantly in positions where I have to, you know, in terms of my day job and what have you, where these circumstances just create themselves. So um, oh, what you... That's right. You it, work. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I work. I work long. Yeah. With these people, and you so, work for people who pay you. You work directly for the people who write the checks, probably. Um. Well, I feel like that this week, but I don't feel like that all weeks. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a little too cryptic. But yeah, the reality is, um, I there's still always some bureaucracy between me and the checks. The closer I am to the people that write the checks. Usually, the further away I feel from the actual checks, yeah. um, so there's some paradox like that. Yeah. But um, no, the circumstances I can't. I'm trying to think of non-professional life circumstances that I can actually draw upon. Uh, well, it's hmm. like I'll listen to a, a really good-looking girl say the most boring shit, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. I'll, and I'll actually be interested. That's the sad part. Yeah, well, that's 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 your inner monkey, isn't it? And that's got and nothing got to do that. with. <laughs> yeah, I have sat down and, and really enjoyed listening to some women say the dumbest thing. Uh, yes, yes, right. <laughs> yes. So the final point I wanted to make, because really I think the smartest person in the room is just something to leave out there for future conversation. <laughs> I decided to befriend, uh, this, this relates also to the stalking conversation, I decided to befriend uh, Moises Barbalat following our last conversation yeah. because I thought there was nothing rational in this and I have a series of people who and the notion I mean my feeling now with Facebook is it's getting to the point of oversaturation for me I think I because my wife for a period of time also used my Facebook account I have to just see 
I see these names of people who apparently I know through Facebook and I have no gauge of yeah, who they are. Yeah, yeah. And my feeling with that um, is if Moises Barbalat is just one of these people so much the, so much the better and you know he, he yeah. can feel comfortable and I don't have to feel anything. Yeah, I've got more people on – you know, I've, yeah, I, I, for a while I began to feel overwhelmed by Facebook and then mm. I realized you know, this is just a place where I can put stuff into the world. And the more people who stumble onto it, great. But, yes, uh, I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. And so I just go, I've, you know, just recently realized I can put links up there. Certainly. So every time I run into anything that I think is mildly interesting, I put it up there, you know, hmm. and, and not, not many people are following, but once in a while someone says, hey, that was cool. And I like that. That's really nice. And that's just a place for me to put stuff out. Yeah. My mother, who is three years your junior, has just discovered links on Facebook as well. And it's quite cute, actually, because she found it both in parallel. She, mainly YouTube now. Yeah. So she's kind of discovered YouTube, Facebook, as you did, in terms yeah. of the immense lazing and putting those two things together. Yeah. She, I think, picked it up. I used to, and I still do, um, I have very eclectic musical interests, as you do too. I mean, it's wonderful, actually. The end of our chats, I... I uh, particularly because you find tracks which resonate with your own thinking about our chats. Um, the, Not consciously. Oh, I, I, I don't know. About no, that. I'm quite anyway. serious. No, I've got the list already picked ahead of time sometimes. Oh, okay. Oh, very good. Okay. But anyway, so um, I used to use, because uh, YouTube for me, particularly because a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in, the copyright holders don't really care. But YouTube is a very good way of finding songs and actually putting them into. Um, into general circulation. Yeah. Um, in terms of, I mean, out of the, you know, how many people I know on Facebook, a few of them like well, at least some of my eclectic listening interests. Um, but that's one of the things I found interesting with the Biota podcast in particular. I started uh, experiment because I don't put any music, um, well, I do, but it's music that I've created. The one exception to that is that I used the theme from Biota. But I had a, a Beastie Boys track that was um, where they had the audio. It was just an acapella track. And I put that over the theme at the end, uh, which got some commentary. Uh, but you, it sounds like a normal theme. So people that are stopping the podcast will stop the podcast. People are actually listening to get the end, get that as a, what's the term, an Easter egg. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so anyway, so I've, I've, I've declared peace with the with the Barbalats uh, for the time <laughs> being. But, uh, yes, I, I don't know. It's a funny thing. I think it's this notion. I wanted to, um, I was doing running errands with my wife just before coming on this call. I thought this is a question that I want to ask Karen. In terms of your movement from your adopted family into the military, when did you actually join the Air Force? Oh, man. Were you 17, 16? Oh, no, I was older now. It was 1966, so I was 20. Okay. So were you a graduate by that point, or no, did you? I was. Uh, I was a. So we'll see. It twenty nineteen sixty six. I was uh, a student at a junior college. Okay. But okay. I had no degree or anything, and I really didn't know what the hell I was doing there. Right. Right. So, in terms of your choice to join the Air Force and the environment that you grew up on, can you? Was there any connection? Was it an escape thing? Was it a continuation of your family life? What was oh, no, it? no. It was just I didn't want to get in the Army and, and be out there with a gun in my hand getting shot at. 
Right. That was a draft. Certainly. And I was about to get drafted into the Army, and uh, the Air Force was the, the Air the Force meant sitting behind a desk in an air-conditioned office. Mm. It was the, just chicken shit. You, if I had any guts, I would have left the country, but yeah. uh, you know, or the, gone to jail. But that I didn't. In have terms any of guts. choice, was your did you was there any preference in terms of the fact that you weren't drafted that you actually chose to join the military? Well, I didn't feel like it was much of a choice. It was either it was a choice between being in the army and having a gun and out walking around in the grass, or being behind a desk. Mm. So it was a proactive. It was a proactive movement. Yeah. And, of course, the difference was four, between two years in the Army, if you managed to survive, or four years in the Air Force. And I figured I'll take four years in the Air Force. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it was just straight, uh, you know, I just didn't want to die. <laughs> it yes. was that simple. Yes. Yes. So your family life leading up to that point... Did your adopted father served in the military, or? Yeah, but he died when I was twelve. Okay. So it was just my mother, and my mother and I never had any kind of relationship at all. Really, she had she didn't have a clue about me. Hell, I didn't have a clue about me. <laughs> so <laughs> how could she? You know. So but you grew up in L.A. Yeah. Through the fifties. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah, it was. What suburb? Well, I, uh, my earliest childhood was in San- well, I was born in Beverly Hills, but that was a fluke. <laughs> we quickly moved to uh, San Diego, and I was mm. in San Diego to the third grade, and then mm. moved to Long Beach, uh, mm. and stayed basically there from then on. You know, mm. and uh, so went to an all boys Catholic high school. Gosh. That was. Gosh. So when you emerged from the all-boys Catholic high school into Long Beach in the early 60s? Yeah, I graduated in 63 from high Gosh. school. So in terms of the images of, I guess the images of Long Beach in the 60s are probably colored with the late 60s rather than what it was like in the early 60s. Well, in the early 60s, I was completely, you know, my whole life before 1967 when I woke up from the trance of language, mm-hmm. uh, everything before that, uh, just is sort of like this fuzzy. I mean, I really wasn't there. I was just sort of a drone doing what was expected by the culture. Mm. Uh, I listened, you know, I believed everything I heard my language machine say, and it said, however, you know, it basically. Okay, yeah, so that's yeah. the modern era narrative. Let's channel into the dream. Uh, in terms of you leave high school, you're, I guess, 18, you're in Long Beach. Did you immediately enroll in a junior college? Yeah, I went. Yeah, I went to Long Beach City College. Uh, right. I went through like five majors in two years. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. um, was that a fun place to be? Oh yeah, there was this girl with the greatest body. I'll never forget her. She used to walk through the quad, and in the entire place just came to a, to silence. Uh-huh. It was. I mean, she knew. I mean, obviously, she was Clearly. dressing to to Clearly. to that effect, and but it sure as hell worked. <laughs> I, I have, it's one of the few things I remember about my my junior college years. <laughs> it's interesting that that comes up yes. of all things. So, when you reference it, you mentioned trying to get laid versus actually getting laid. Is that the distinction, or uh, I was a virgin till I was twenty one. 
Gosh. Yeah, I don't know how. Yeah, I was. Well, you know, I was fucked up going to an all boys Catholic, Catholic yeah, high the Catholic, school. Yeah, yeah. Believe I mean, me, the only I women I, I mean, I didn't yeah. know any girls as human beings. Every yeah. girl I knew was a girl that I yeah. dated, and there wasn't a whole lot of dating going on when you don't own a car. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. You know, uh, I was, I was, uh, you know, I'd seen movies and I had all these fantasies about what life was about, but my life was uh, pretty constrained, Good. you know, in in three dimensions. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Gosh, Catholic boys' school. Yeah. Well, that was good in the sense that, uh, I mean, when I got out of there, I knew for sure I was through with religion. You know, I mean, if I hadn't gone there, I might still have been, you know, a go to church on Sunday kind of guy, you know. Yes. And, and then, but I was so fed up with it after that 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 was the end of it. So, mm. so that was probably good, you know. Mm. My brothers went to boarding school for a period of time, and I the the thing about it was that I was living in the city that they were going to boarding school in, and protested greatly to both my parents. I was probably 1920 at the time and said to both the parents, why aren't my brothers living with me? Um, and their experiences at boarding school, which are probably very different than yours because you got to go home, I guess, irrespective. Yeah, of I wasn't. School. It was a boarding school, but I didn't board. I just yeah. went there yeah. the day and came home. But uh, no, the, the experiences they had there, I still... Uh, my mother kept a pile of letters that I wrote to her over that period and presented me with the letters at the start of this year. She sent them in a parcel, and I read through them and felt exactly the same emotion I felt back then, but realized that she probably wanted to get, to get rid of them and pass them <laughs> off to me. Um, but, yeah, I, I felt very angry that uh, both my parents would consciously send my, I guess they were probably 13-year-old brothers to this boarding school. Um Thankfully, however, well, whilst there was some state religion that was applied to them, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a Catholic uh, it wasn't a Catholic boarding school. My experience with Catholicism, particularly country Catholicism, only started when I went to university and lived on campus. I was relatively naive about these things and decided that living on campus in a small Catholic college that was still run by nuns might be an interesting cultural experience. Well, I, learned, <laughs> I learned pretty swiftly that the, when they asked me to declare what race I was and what religion my parents were, that being known as the, uh, you know, as the, well, I'll, I'll just say Jewish guy, I won't use any derogatory term, <laughs> it was um, very, and in terms of, yeah, forced sterilization also. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think the interesting thing that struck me from that was this, yeah, this whole fear, counter-fear, and just a mentality which I could never um, embody. Certainly in Australia, and we talked a little bit about this, the, the kind of sense of just, uh, either explicit or implicit institutional sexual abuse came through all these uh, all these kind of experiences. I I didn't really well. I effectively dated a girl for a period of about a year, whose father had really profoundly abused her, uh, and it affected me. I mean, it still affects me to this day to a certain extent. But um, at the time, it was very overwhelming. I met the father. Uh, and he proceeded to full body hug me and hold on to me for the evening that I met him. 
and I realized that this, there was something seriously wrong with this fellow, and that kind of made me realize what had actually gone on previously. But they were a strong go-to-church-every-Sunday kind of Catholic family, and I think certainly my experience, and mainly the Catholic men who were there didn't really talk. Um, they were very... The ones that I befriended were very much... It was about... Because there was a brutalizing aspect to it as well. I mean, basically, it was effectively a boarding school. These people had been to boarding school. It was just a kind of continuation for them. Uh, but there was a hierarchy where we had to do various works around the um, the college on campus. Uh, but more importantly, I got glandular fever in my second year there and was physically incapacitated for probably about four or five months. It's mono um, in US speak. Mm. Uh, and the institution had no means of coping with that. In fact, I just basically locked myself in my room and ordered food. I went through about, thankfully, I was working from age 15 but it burnt a good chunk of my savings ordering this food because no one would actually give me food from the college, even though I was paying for food. Um, but, yeah, I, I just get the sense... The, the nature of Catholicism in Australia, and I, I learned this from Irish Catholics and um, Italian Catholics outside of Australia, is something which is in and of itself a quality of the isolation of Australia, it's not a quality of Catholicism in general, but I do understand that there are, you know, that the, what you're describing could have impacted you in a wide variety of different ways. Well, um, I think Catholicism is probably quite different in different communities, even. Mm. And, and well, among, it, it, yeah, it mutates to the community. Yeah, it, yeah. it mutates to the community yeah, fundamentally. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure what Long Beach Catholicism was like. Well, it, it was nothing to me. You know, I went to church on Sunday because I was supposed to, and I sort of had to, you know. Uh, and the rest of the week, I never gave it a thought. I never believed that shit. I never did. Even when I was a little kid, I, I, I thought the whole thing was bullshit, but I learned to keep my mouth shut because the big ones don't like to hear that. <laughs> So I just shut up about it. But I don't recall. I'm always sort of amazed when I hear people tell me about their their religion when they were young, you know, how they believed that stuff and the f kind of feelings they had. And to me, the whole thing was just always nonsense mm. and, and a waste of time. Every Sunday I was thinking I could be doing something interesting, <laughs> you know, and I'm stuck yeah. at this stupid place listening to this bullshit. Although there were some cute girls there, so that was the only way I managed <laughs> to get Very to good. the church is to try to look up the skirts of the girls Very any, good. anywhere in the church that were cute, you know. I mean, it was pathetic. Mm-hmm. You know, you just reminded me, though, of a really interesting, a real life-changing experience I did have in church when I was graduating from St. John Bosco High School. <laughs> I'd been there for four years, you know, 9, yes. 10, 11, and 12. And it was a small school. There were only like 35 people in my graduating class. And, uh, and most of those people I'd gone to school with since the ninth grade. The same, you know, I mean, I'd say 25 of them were the same people that I started in the ninth grade with. Mm. And we were practicing, we were in the chapel, sitting in the, in the chapel, you know, all 35 of us. Uh, we were doing a practice for our graduation ceremony. And I looked around, I was sitting there, and I looked around, and I was surrounded by all these strangers. It was like the Twilight Zone. You know, I looked yes. around and I was looking at all these people and I said, who the hell are these people? Where am I? Yes. I had no idea. It was, you know, like I say, it was like the Twilight Zone. 
And well, I was Facebook. looking at this guy, and then I realized, ah, oh, yes. that's Wayne Ebear. Jesus, he's old. What happened to him? And I started <laughs> looking around, and gradually all these people came, started coming into focus. And I realized that I'd, I'd formed an opinion, an image of them in the ninth grade. And since most of them were just non-entities to me, I, I made friends with two or three people, and the rest of them I, I would say hello to, and that was the extent of it. And, and I was still seeing them like they were in the ninth grade. And then all of a sudden, I, I could see these old, you know, teenagers. <laughs> you know, it was, and it, it, I don't know, that took maybe a minute or two for me to go through this process to realize what had happened. But it really shook me. And that really, now that I think about it, was really an important, one of the first important reality-shaking moments for me. Because mm. for a, for a, at least thirty seconds or a minute, maybe or maybe even longer, I it was like waking from a dream. I was sitting in a place I had no idea who any of these people were, or how they got there, or who they were, and that really was pretty scary for a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. When did you change your name to Heron? Nineteen ninety-five. Wow! So you've only been Heron relatively recently. Yeah. 15, 15, 15 years. years, yeah. And did you trial the name Heron before you changed your name to Heron? Oh, did I tell you how Heron's no, stone became? Oh, there's a whole long start. story. Okay, I've, I've got time. Okay, well, Heron, you know what an anagram is, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, Heron Stone is a phonetic anagram of my original name. If I, you know, if you write out my name in my writing system, in a phonetic writing, you know, like my, my original name was Dennis Horn. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, in Dennis, there are two N's usually, but there aren't two N sounds. There's only one N sound, and there is no so, I sound. It's a schwa. It's uh, yeah. not I. Yeah. So I, when I wrote out Dennis Horn phonetically, then I did, an, I did anagrams of that. And uh, and I came up with No Nurse Ahead, Edna Hosner, Orson <laughs> Hind, O. Henderson, and uh -huh. Heron Stone. Which uh -huh. one would you pick? <laughs> oh, O. Henderson, definitely. Well, okay, well, I like Edna Hosner, actually. I think that's a pretty good one, too. <laughs> or, and also, yeah, also Nerdo They're Hessen. They're all pretty good. They're uh, yeah, pretty Nerdo good. Hessen is a good one, too. I like that. <laughs> uh, but I decided to go with Heron Stone. Uh -huh. <laughs> So the the notion of so this process, what happened in '95 where you thought I've got to change oh, my name? Oh, it had been happening. It had been coming for years. I'd Clearly, been, I'd been yeah. uh, considering changing my name. It it really gets down to that. It's a you know the tradition in, mo in monastic life is at mm. a certain point uh, you are no longer the same person and you take mm. on a new name, one mm. of your own choosing rather than someone else's choosing. But mm. I wanted, like I say, I wanted to pay some homage. You know, so I figured I'd, you know, can remain with the, the phonetics of it so that, you know, it, it still has the tonal quality of Dennis Horn. Hmm, that's an interesting story. I've always been fascinated by people that change their name. My, my wife's sister changed her name, but only, only a spelling of it. Uh -huh. But even that was embodied in a, you know, in, I guess some sense of transformation. Well, it was a strange experience. Uh, my friends and everybody around me really had less of a problem with it than I did. I would imagine that might be the case. Yeah, I would be sitting somewhere and somebody would be saying, Heron, Heron. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was completely oblivious to it. Yes. You know? 
is. <laughs> but eventually I got used to it, and, uh, you know, over the years it's just it's a non-issue now. But it was uh, it was sort of a strange experience. I can imagine. I can imagine. But I felt good. I'm glad I did it, and it it was it was the right thing for me to do. You know, I mm. really needed to make that break somehow explicit. Mm. It's funny this whole notion. I mean, this is something that kind of recurs with regards to. It's not self hatred, but there's a, there's another element there. I personally, I don't think I could change. I thought about it. I thought about changing my name, but I just don't. I don't feel the need. I feel it's you know it's something which fits me like a glove, really. Yeah, yeah I uh, got it. Yeah, I but, felt the need for. It. I really did. You know, mm. I, I wanted to. I you know, and it wasn't out of self hatred or anything. It's just like it, it. Well, I was aware of that tradition, you know, uh, of people taking a new name, Ram Das. You know, mm. uh, of course, uh, yes. Lots of people I was aware of had done that because they felt like they were on a new life now, and, and it somehow made sense to to do something to to acknowledge that, and that, yes. that resonated with me. Mm. Yes, yes. I think the the elements of self and other. And the description, yeah, it's something which I'm still decompressing, Heron. But yeah, once again, you've left me with a lot of food for thought, and unfortunately, I've given you slightly more food for thought than the audience has received this evening. But um, <laughs> I, I think we've had a lot of fun once again this evening. Is there anything you want to conclude with, Heron? Oh, no, I guess not. I'm, uh, you know, yeah, i got nothing to say. Very good, very good. Well, yeah, I'm I'm similarly uh, going to reflect on what we've talked about today, and no doubt we'll pull together some other topics for when we talk next week. I'm looking forward to it, Tom. I am as well. You look after yourself, Heron. Talk Good to night. you next week. Good night.